a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 105th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, your host. And uh, hey, you might have noticed things look a little different. I got a made a new logo, rebranded the whole thing a little bit, kept it blue, similar. You know, try to not change it too much, but had a little cartoon of myself made, kept the 3D glasses, so just wanted to, to mix it up a little bit, so hopefully you like the, the new change, but uh, let's get to the episode, because I have on Brian Hannon, and we're talking about The Magnificent Seven, the film, the movie, 1960s. Uh, if you've never seen it, you probably want to watch it beforehand. If you like The Magnificent Seven, if you like the film... I think you're going to love this episode. If you don't like the film, if you've never seen it, this probably isn't the episode for you. But uh, it's a really cool story. Brian wrote the book on it, literally, like behind the scenes, all the info you could ever want. So he's got a ton of information. Um, and aside from it being a really good movie, there is a shitload of really cool information on the back end of how this thing was made and you know stuff on set with steve mcqueen kind of wanting to one-up the other actors yul brenner uh it's a really fun story so i i think you will enjoy it if you're a film fan if you're a movie fan if you like the magnificent seven this episode is for you uh i enjoyed it so uh let's let's stop yammering here and let's get to the episode with brian hannon all right, we're rolling. How you doing, Brian? Yeah, I'm fine. Fine, thank you. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Good to meet you, and uh, excited to talk about the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, yeah. I was watching it again today, and I struck how, how good it, how good it is again. Yeah, such a fun film. I, I was just, uh, I mean, I, I probably watched it for the first time maybe a year or two ago, so I, I was just exposed to it recently. But yeah, first time I watched it, it was it was really pretty damn exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I didn't see it when I mean I'm not old. I'm not old enough to have seen it when it first came out. Um, but I didn't. I, I grew up in a in a in a new town, as you'd say in Britain, mm-hmm. which is built from the ground up, and we didn't have a cinema. Oh, so okay. I, didn't, I went to the cinema till I was about fifteen, and I kind of wow. saw it on its second or third reissue in a double bill with Return of the Seven. I kind of went and watched Magnificent Seven and then saw Return of the Seven and thought, I've just seen that film twice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of actually like, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but that's probably kind of like a lot of people where they maybe didn't see it when it was first released, but it kind of gained steamed afterwards, huh? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's kind of an interesting little thing, but yeah, because now it's just such a, it's such a classic. It's in every, you know, top top movie list it's always magnificent yeah. sevens listed in there but yeah it, it wasn't it's nest- actually more popular than the ones that tend to be listed at the very top right more popular than the searchers or the wild bunch or once upon a time in the west mm-hmm. with the ordinary public with critics slightly less so sure uh, it's not generally considered as the very best but the public tends to like it and you can you can just judge the number of times the movie's shown on any uh, uh, network television or or streaming or whatever or the video. You know, just by the the, the number of times it's been repeated, it's constantly on. You can't, you'll find it everywhere. Whereas you you've struggled to find the searchers or the Wild Bunch or Rio Bravo or Red River. So right. You know, Everybody yeah. will have seen it at one point, and of course you'll have heard the music, so you'll you'll be very familiar with the music. Whereas I couldn't tell you what the music of the Searchers were like, or Rio Bravo, or Red River. It's kind of a different thing. Anyway, part of yeah. your question. No, no. I mean, that's that's so true. I think I saw when I was kind of researching this, you know, for our talk right now. I saw that this was in the top top you know whatever few movies that are have been shown on TV over the time. I think, or it's been shown yeah, the yeah. most. Yeah, it was, it was uh, when it was initially shown in America, and it was shown very quickly on television. It was shown like two years after it was made, mm. um, which was just like there's something wrong here, <laughs> um, and it attracted a record audience. And when it was shown in Britain, it attracted a record. It wasn't shown in Britain until about ten years later, but it attracted a record audience. Wow! And films like that tend to tend to continually attract record audiences, generally from people who say I. 
heard about that or I've seen it or my dad loves it and then you just say, oh yeah, I can see what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, uh, so let's dive into it. I mean, I think the first thing, uh, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but kind of the big big thing that I was exciting for me to discover is it's kind of a, a remake of a, an, of another movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Remake of The, of the Seven Samurai, which is a Japanese um, action film uh, from the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pretty unusual um, in that most Japanese films at that time were kind of artistic, dramatic. Or the, ones, the ones that came to Britain or America tended to be artistic. Mm-hmm. Um, dramatic films, but this was a this was a full blooded action picture. Yeah, uh, with tons of battles, tons of sword fights, arrows, bows, the whole thing, muskets. Um, so it was kind of a it won it won uh, prizes at the big film festivals, and it kind of came to America, and and people thought, what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like quite a different film to what the Magnificent Seven turned out to be because it was. Set in a specific time period of transition, and samurai were not like gunfighters. Gunfighters are generally they're okay if they're on your side, but otherwise we don't want them anywhere near our town. Sure. Whereas samurai were revered. It was it was a it was a thing. You know, you if you were a samurai, everybody was going to kind of bow down to you and say, "What a great guy you are." They weren't going to say, "Get out of our town." Hmm. So it was a completely different type of uh, backdrop. To, to the American um, film, and when the and the they, they examined much more closely um, the relationship between samurai and and the villagers. Uh, mm. In the Seven Samurai, the villagers are, are much more devious than they are in the Magnificent Seven. Magnificent, yes, they kind of do betray them, but they're not really as devious as they are in, in the Seven Samurai. It's quite a different film. Um, and the action sequences are just stupendous. I mean, this is a film where most of the battles are shot in the rain. Yeah. The rain is a tremendously effective uh, cinematic device. You know, you think of Blade Runner or something like that. But very few films actually are almost constantly constantly raining. So the battle in the rain is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it had a big kind of impact but the chances of it kind of being turned into something else you know in those days it wasn't like now where if there's a big hit in france or italy or, or anywhere hollywood says yeah let's turn that into a hollywood movie that wasn't done oh. way back day. so it was kind of unusual that this actually got turned into a western that somebody said oh this we think this would make a good western yeah and basically the one of the things that happened when it was released is that um it, it often get poor reviews because <clears throat> Americans thought, what the heck are we doing taking ideas from Japan for? We know how to make Westerns. What are we doing taking an idea from Japan? Right, yeah, in the 60s too. Strangely enough, it was a huge hit in Japan. The, the, the Western was a huge hit in Japan. Oh, okay, when, interesting. When seven went there. Wow. So do you, whose idea was it, or how did the, the idea start to germinate for you know, turning the Seven Samurai into the Magnificent Seven? Well, well basically the idea came from Anthony Quinn, um, okay. who saw it in, a, in, a, in an art house in LA, I guess. Um, and she, he was buddies at the time with Yul Brenner. Um, and he said to him, I think this would make a good Western. And um, initially, Yul Brenner at that time was, was in quite a strange um, kind of area, area of, of stardom. Mm-hmm. Um, he had just been he, he he had been a television director before he became a serious actor, and he always wanted to direct. And at one point, he was going to direct a Cecil B. DeMille picture in the late fifties called The Buccaneer that he was set up to to um, direct, but then DeMille pulled him out of it. Um, but um, he had uh, enormous ambitions to become a kind of movie mogul. Um, he wanted to be a star producer, director. In the 1950s, a lot of a lot of stars did go down the production route, but mm-hmm. Lancaster, Frank Sinatra, they all produced their own films, but they didn't usually have massive backing. So Joe Grinner got a deal with United Artists to make 11 pictures for the equivalent of what these days would be $300 million. Ooh. So could you imagine any star these days getting handed on a plate yeah. Here's $300 away and go and make us some movies. Right. 
conversation what happened. It was unheard of. But he must have talked a good talk. And he certainly had a lot of ideas. Most of the pictures were going to star him. And, but at that time, he was the number one star in America because he'd been in the Ten Commandments, which was a massive hit in 1956. He'd won the Oscar for The King and I the same year, also a massive hit. And his next picture was a film called Anastasia with Ingrid Bergman, and that was another big hit. So he had three absolute ginormous hits all on the trot. Um, he had these ambitions to, to turn himself into a bigger figure. A United Artist, uh, which tended to back um, people who wanted to, to produce or direct, um, they, they kind of thought, well, this guy's got some you know, guts, um, let's give him the money. So initially, uh, Brenner was going to direct it, and Anthony Quinn was going to star it. He was going to play the role that uh, Toshiro Mifune uh, played in the original, so he was the original leader. Oh. Seven Samurai. Um, but for one reason or another, that never came to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie took, took really about three or four years before it got to uh, production. And in that time, there was just tons of, of problems. Um, in the first place, Yul uh, Brenner was, he could never make up his mind. Um, he had you know, 11 projects and he didn't know which one to do first. Oh, if I do this one, oh, maybe I should do that one. And so competing with um, Magnificent Seven, he was going to make a film about Spartacus um, at the same time as Kirk Douglas was making his film about Spartacus. His, Joe Brenner's film was going to be called The Gladiators. Oh. There were two books about Spartacus that came out, uh, one by um, Arthur Kessler, who's a famous um, kind of philosopher-type writer, which was the one that Joe Brenner had, and the other one that, the, that Kirk Douglas had was based on a Howard Fast book and basically told roughly the same story with a different kind of perspective and different kind of um, characters, some different characters. Um, but uh, so basically for two or three years, these these films jockeyed with each other over getting funding. So initially, um, Joe Brenner had, uh, was in the lead because he had funding um, and Kurt Douglas found it very hard to get funding. Um, and eventually he ended up at Universal and got funding there. And it was only it was really only by the skin of his teeth that that Joe Brenner's picture did not go ahead before the Magnificent Seven. Wow. And it was also what kept the Magnificent Seven from being made earlier. It could easily be made in nineteen fifty-eight rather than nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a a different and also the the other part of the story was that Anthony Quinn tried to buy the rights to to make the American version, only to discover that somebody else had already bought Oh, a screenwriter called Lou, Lou Morheim, who was more, most famous for a couple of science fiction pictures, but he bought the rights. If you watch the picture, you'll see he's got a credit somewhere. So when they, when they, they then went through a number of, when Joe Brenner decided uh, he didn't want to, he didn't want to direct it, um, and then he decided he didn't want to produce it either. Um, then it went to um, other directors who, who came in. Martin Ritt, who was uh, famous for HUD and films of Homebrae and Sounder and Pete and Tilly. Um, he uh, was the original director who was going to take it on. Um, and then that fell through. And then it went to a guy called Anatole Litvak, who was a buddy of, of Joe Brunner. And that fell through. And eventually ended up with John Sturgis. So, so John Sturgis came into came into the picture, and because he was a producer director, that meant the exit of Lou, Lou Morhaime. Mm. So as John Sturgis came in, and um, he basically he he directed the gunfight at the OK Corral. So he was pretty au fait with wrestlers, and he'd done a couple of other ones. Um, and basically, he came in, and Yul uh, Brenner then just became the star. Um, and then the, the film started to to take shape mm-hmm. um, with different um, different writers who were involved and trying yeah. to get the film to, to change from being just a kind of version of the Southern Samurai, which was the original kind of idea. Um, and effectively, they get rid of the Tashuri Mifune character. Um, Yogrunner's not him at all. And they merged some characters and, and, and made a kind of different film, one that fitted into the American idea mm. of a Western. Yeah. And so that's kind of what they, what they took um, to, to get made. 
Um, but they hit a lot of a lot of obstacles on the way. Um, there was a, there was both an in, as they were setting up the film, there was both an actor strike and a writer strike. Jeez. <laughs> so the only reason they saw a lot of films were shut down. In, in the films that were filming in Hollywood were shut down because of the actor strike. Um, and the only reason that they were exempt from the actor strike was because they were filming in Mexico. Mm, right. Seven in Hollywood. It would have. It would probably never been made because Joe Brenner had what was called um, a pair play deal, which meant that um, he get paid whether the movie got made or not. Ooh, that's if a good the deal. Movie didn't get paid. If he, the movie didn't go on, go forward on its original schedule, he would still get his money and he'd go on, move on and make another film. Wow. <laughs> so that was kind of that's how big a star he was yeah. at the time. So the when they when they moved to uh, Mexico, um, they then hit further problems with with the Mexicans. Yeah, um, Mexican the Mexicans weren't very happy with the way Mexicans were portrayed in in Hollywood pictures. Basically, they were by and large bad guys, mm-hmm. and generally, and, and they didn't like the idea that Mexicans had to go to America to get help to solve this problem of this uh, bandit chief. Um, tearing up their villages, yeah, and so the the um, they forced on the production some some clauses that they had to make the film in a particular way. So if you if you notice throughout the film, the the Mexicans are always in spotless white costumes. Mm-hmm. That's because they didn't want the the villagers to look grubby, right? They're always looking grubby. Um, and they changed the script. Initially, the script was that they they went to get gunfighters, but they changed the script so that they were sent to get guns. And it was Joe Brenner who suggested to them they get they get gunfighters on the bizarre notion, you know, if guns were too expensive. How could gunfighters carrying guns be less expensive? <laughs> you know, completely illogical. Yeah, it doesn't go. even make sense. Yeah. So they, so they had they come up again. They had a they had a censor on set, yeah. and, they to, uh, and the American because there was an actor strike in in Hollywood and few films that were getting made. Quite a lot of journalists were sent down to any films that were being made. Hmm. So the Magnificent Seven actually got quite a lot of, of press while it was being made, and most of it was very anti-Mexican. These terrible Mexicans, which was kind of you know pretty pretty raw to yeah. You know, Hollywood has, you know, dumped on quite a lot of um, civilizations and cultures down the years, you know, not least um, the Mexicans. So it kind of seemed quite a bold thing for Mexico to do because the amount of money that was coming into Mexico from this reduction was maybe a third of the entire amount of money spent on, in Mexican movies in that year. Wow. So they were taking a huge gamble in saying... If you don't do this our way, you're not going to get the film here at all. Yeah. So that I thought that was quite brave. But yeah, for... the American journalists didn't see it that way. They just saw it as kind of interfering, horrible Mexicans. How dare you challenge, you know, Hollywood? Right. So it's kind of an odd, um, an odd uh, thing they had to go through. Yeah. No, that is quite crazy that they literally had a a censor on set telling them what they could and couldn't do, and and literally change the script and change the movie. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah. man oh man. So I had. A, what do you think about the because the yeah the adaptation and kind of the screen the the change of the um, you know adapting it from uh, Seven Samurai because uh, I think a a big thing is people who may not have seen Seven Samurai, that movie is like over three hours long, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... And in the, to, to two hours. Yeah. And so they, it, in order to do that, they had to get rid of quite a lot of stuff. So there's four battles in, in the Seven Samurai, and there's only two, and so that was the first thing. Mm. And get rid of some of the battles, make it, make it simpler. It simplified all those kind of cultural things between the... Um, between the samurai and, and the villagers, that kind of all went. Um, and also, the most interesting thing I thought from an American movie-making perspective was that you never really saw the bandit leader in The Seven Samurai. He wasn't particularly a character. Mm-hmm. He just kind of, you know, appeared and disappeared, but he wasn't he wasn't Eli Wallach. He wasn't some guy making a big um, kind of statement. So that was kind of the biggest thing, I thought, was, you know, you started with. In Seven Samurai, the... 
the bandits um, appear at the village, but they don't go into the village. It's one of the villagers here overhears them saying, oh, we'll come back and take this village. And then they go and try and get some defence. But in, in Management 7, you see how difficult a character um, Eli Wallach is. Uh, mm-hmm. Charming, though he is. By far the, one of the most charming villains you'd ever come across, um, who had, thought he was being a benevolent dictator and, you know, and not taking all their foods and <laughs> making them too impoverished so he couldn't come back the next year and steal from them again. Right. So that kind of changed the... Kind of changed the perspective entirely because you suddenly had um, not just a kind of mob of samurai. You suddenly had a, a character because you never learn anything about the rest of the of the the bandits, only Eli Wallach. So he's kind of the focal point of of those scenes, and he is very clever. The dialogue that he's got with the mercenaries trying to convince them that they're all on the same side and really they should just split up the money and, and, and go their own way and you know he's not meaning them personally any harm that kind of added a lot of depth um, to the film um, so they kind of had to uh, really make this work as a two hour movie rather mm-hmm. than a and really two hours was, was in United after size too long they thought it was 15 minutes too long Hmm. And just before it was, uh, just before they were they were about to release it, um, John Sturges got a stinking telegram from United Artists saying, "We think this is too long. We, you you got to cut these bits." So they wanted to cut actually all the bits with the old man. When they go out to the old man's um, shack to say, "Look, you've got to come into the village, otherwise we can't protect you." So what's the point of that scene? They wanted to cut quite a lot of the recruitment. They wanted to cut a, bit, a good bit of the travel because when they're going from the first town to to the village, they're, they're actually just trotting along. You know, the music's battering away. You know, you've got this tremendous beat of the music. But these guys are just trotting along. They're not doing any speed mm-hmm. and all that. And all, you know, and so there was kind of lots of ways where they could have just speeded it up and made it much tighter. So, you know, if you need to ask, felt that it, it would be two hours, it was just too long for a Western, you know. Wasn't it wasn't trying to be a, an artistic western? It was just a western. Mm-hmm. So they so they um, they then had to determine how they were going <clears> to <throat> make up the rest of the seven. Um, quite a lot of they just stole from the seven samurai. There's very a lot of quite um, similarities between the, the two movies. Quite a, a few occasions where they've just stolen lines, um, and so they but they, they had to find kind of actors that would they would be different enough. Um, to I mean, it was very unusual for a studio to remotely try and present a story with seven characters. You bet your mind. You could have a, a movie with two stars and then some, you know, people that plotted in the right, maybe Rio Bravo, you might think, you know, mm-hmm. two stars and then, you know, some, some character actors. To try and present a movie with seven stars, most of whom were kind of on the verge of a breakthrough, maybe. Mm-hmm. And and they, they, they quite deliberately in some of the uh, publicity shots you would often see all seven together. So it's kind of kind of pretty hard to um, to market that to an audience who's only ever heard of your brand. Right. Yeah. Like well, he was a reasonable, but not really anybody else. You know, Steve McQueen was a television star, but he was in a half hour black and white western. Yeah. You know, so there was still that feeling in America that. Why should we pay good money to go to the movies to see a guy we can see for free every week? So uh, television stars were not considered a big deal in America. Interesting. And very few of them actually made the transition. Only about three or four, Steve McQueen, James Garner, that was about it, in the transition to proper proper films. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of trying to recruit uh, stars. They, they, they actually, the original idea was that horse becomes would be the breakout star. You know, yeah. And he gets the most lines. He gets the best part. He's the one that romances the girl. He's got two or three, he's got two or three proper comedy sections. You know, he gets drunk in the bar when he does the thing with a with a cow. And he tries to play a bullfight with a cow. He's got the, he's got a couple of really serious dramatic moments. He's the guy that goes up to the bell tower and rings the alarm to bring the villagers who are in hiding. He's the guy that goes and discovers that the um, after the first battle, 
that the the bandits are um, in trouble. Um, they've had no food. They're desperate. He, you know, so he's got three or four really good um, scenes to himself that none of the others have. All the others have got scenes with one or the other of the or or commonly. Mm-hmm. And with one of the other characters. So he was basically kind of put in. They thought he would be the guy that would break out. He would be the, the new star. And he was signed by signed up by Billy Wilder, the famous director, some like hot. And he was already meant to be in the next Billy Wilder film. Mm-hmm. So kind of Hollywood was thinking he's the guy that's going to make this film, Your Brother We Know About, and then it's going to be Horse to Cult. So it was kind of, I, you know, I thought he was okay, but he still just looked like a young guy. Whereas mm-hmm. all the other ones looked like hard bitten, um, maybe character actors, but but looked as all looked as though they had something about them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what makes the makes the makes the movie. You don't really get kind of hard looking guys like Charlie Bronson uh, playing good guys. Mostly they play bad guys. Yeah. Uh, and James Coburn, you know, there was a lot of, they, they, all had, they, all had, they all brought something different in kind of the way they walked or the way they acted. And a lot, all of them had pretty much a very good introduction. Um, those scenes where they were all effectively introduced individually, the Steve McQueen with, with the hearse. Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, <clears throat> James Coburn as a knife thrower. Charlie Bronson, you know, chopping chopping the wood, this big muscular guy, you know, he's about twice the size of McQueen and Brenner put together. Um, you know, and Robert Vaughn is the cowardly guy, you know, the cowardly gunfighter. Um, Brad Dex is the only one that's kind of introduced without really much commotion. Um, but he's still the greedy one. He's, he kind of thinks... You know, yeah, I'll go there. There's really some bigger deal going on. I'll find gold. Find yeah. gold. And he keeps that persona going all the way through. And he's constantly trying to say, no, if you just tell me where the gold is, I'll be gone. Yeah. So it's kind of it kind of sets up all these characters with a considerable bit of individuality. Um, it's not always followed, followed through. I mean, you see James Cobb using a knife at the very beginning. He never used a knife again. Yeah. <laughs> this famous knife thing. Well, do you not you know somebody you're gonna throw your knife at? No, no, I'll just use a gun, it's a lot easier. Yeah, that's so true. Right. And also the scene I think is um is so misunderstood because it gets a laugh is when they're they're they find the um the, the bandit scouts you know, just when they've got into the village and just when the, the big uh, ceremony's going on, the big fiesta. Um and Coburn and and Vaughan and um of course, Bacolks go up to the hills and find these guys. And then uh, Bacolks, uh, because he's fat, really fast asleep, gets taken by surprise, shoots one guy. Coburn shoots the other. One, one escapes and Coburn fires a rifle at him, kills the guy. And Bacolks uh, says, my God, what a wonderful shot. And, and Coburn says, no, I was aiming for the horse, which was what he was told to do. He was told to go and find, you know, bring back a prisoner. So as we'd find out what what they know, and in the in the Seven Samurai, that is what happens. They bring back a prisoner, mm-hmm. and if you remember, that's the scene where um, the samurai are actually willing to let this bandit guy go because they see that he's kind of the same as them. Um, but it's a it's an old woman who wants him torn to pieces. Yeah, but they find out from him what the plans are of the bandit. So in this instance, they don't find out. Um, and it kind of plays well as a, as a joke. Not sure it was ever intended as one. I'm not sure if maybe he did actually think, no, I'm not as brilliant as you think I am. So they kind of they kind of tend to. Charles Bronson gets a good part as the you know child loving um, guy, and all the kids. You know, there's nothing cute. You know, in most lessons, if you get kids, they're cute kids. You know, it's like Disney had them out. You know, they came out from Disneyland. These kids are just like kids. They say the wrong thing. They say, you know, we'll bury you. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, we've been designated to, if you die, we the guys that are going to bury you. think, well, hold on a minute. Not really what I want to hear. <laughs> um, you know, and then they're constantly getting into trouble. They're constantly endangering people. Um, the girl um, that Bocox falls in love with, she's really quite, there's that, that lovely scene in the um, when they're getting their first meal 
and she's bringing in whatever it is, you know, he's serving them something that looks like slop. Um, and she puts a portion down on his plate and he ignores her. And he puts another, she puts another portion down and he still ignores her. Then she moves around the table and then slaps a huge portion down and he looks up. And the other people realise there's something going on here, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then she goes around to Steve McQueen and gives him a tiny portion. And so you've got this kind of, you know, bit of comedy, you know, and then Bronson comes in and says, oh, do you not realise that, you know, where we're getting well-fed, all these villages are starving. So it kind of, they, they kind of, that that's in the original, um, but not quite with the, you know, the resonance. Uh, the, the love story in the original is much tougher. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's uh, given a much harder time by her father who doesn't want her to fall in love with a samurai because they are just bad guys, you know, they do bad things. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a different a different um, story. So So basically, yeah, they had a, <clears throat> had to condense quite a lot from the original film and then make sure that, that it would be accessible to an American audience. And really, the, the, you're led through by Yul Brenner. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody ever looked better in a hat than Yul Brenner. You know, right. black, hat, black outfit. He looked, uh, he looked a stone-cold killer. You know, yep. he was just... And if you ever notice, if you ever watch him <clears throat> in any of those scenes, I don't know what it is about him. I don't know if he's doing this deliberately. You can often always see the whites of his eyes hmm. under the under the hat. You know, you look at all the rest of them. Um, occasionally, you might see the whites of somebody's eyes, but often you see. So, if you look in a scene, you'll see Brenner standing out, not just with the black outfit, but the whites of his eyes. Hmm. Uh, very, and he's an absolutely powerful player in, in in many films. He's very underrated as an actor because most people think he doesn't do much, but actually does quite a lot. Um, and he does it without, um, you know, trying to steal scenes. I mean, I, I, I said about that, you know, Steve McQueen did nothing but steal scenes. You know? Yes. He didn't, he didn't have much of a part. You know, he mostly was just dragging along beside Joe Brunner. But if you ever saw him, he was always taking his hat off. You know, on or he's the only guy. You're expecting bandits to arrive. So where's your gun? Oh, it's on my shoulder. It's not in my, I've not got it around my waist. Oh, well, you know. It just seemed kind of bizarre, you know. He kind of got away with it, and he was always fiddling around with something. And every time he was in a scene, he was fiddling around with something to kind of give himself a bit more something to do. Whereas the other ones all seemed like you're done, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't be fiddling around with anything. It was kind of a, an interesting perspective. Yeah, kind of the uh, the battle of the egos there to get a little more attention on the screen, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's so funny to me that that I mean, in retrospect, it makes sense. But you know, a big star like Steve McQueen, it's just so funny that he would be doing that to me. But uh, yeah, like you said, he wasn't. Really, yeah, he wasn't. He'd been in a a movie. No, he'd been in the Blob, obviously, which was his yeah breakout. They didn't want he didn't want a breakout with that. Then he'd been in another um, gangster picture that was useless, and then he was never so few with Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra actually wanted him to be in Ocean's Eleven. He was offered right. a part in Ocean's Eleven. Um, and initially he was going to do that instead of the Magnificent Seven. Um, so if he'd been in Ocean's Eleven, I don't know that how much scene stealing they've got with Frank Sinatra in charge. Yeah. And the rest of the Rat Pack, who were always stealing scenes from each other. So it's kind of uh, quite <laughs> difficult. Um, I think it was quite, I mean, he, he was the one that became the biggest star quickly. The rest mm-hmm. of them, it took much longer to to make a breakthrough. Right. So maybe maybe he was right to kind of try and steal the scenes as much as he could. <laughs> yeah, maybe it worked out for him. Yeah, maybe it worked out for him. Maybe some said, oh, we want that guy who steals scenes. We don't want these guys that are just doing their parts. Yeah. And the star I like, the one I liked best um, was Robert Vaughn. Mm. So I thought Robert Vaughn was the only one who did things that were not without words. Um, you know, yes, um, you know, we know that Bronson's muscly and big because and he chops woods, and we know that Jim Coburn can throw a knife pretty well. Um, but the scene where um, Vaughn, Coburn, and the Colts go up in the hills to track the scouts, he doesn't shoot. Yeah. He pistol out. And there's a scene where you just see him standing, looking down at his hand and his gun. And it's not out, and you can see in his face. And then when the first battle starts, 
you see him almost spread eagled against the wall. Again, he's not pulled the trigger. And then, of course, he has his breakdown when he gets the heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought he was brilliant. You know, I thought he, 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 he I think he's very good. Um, the only one that really had a kind of crisis, dramatic crisis, really. The rest of them didn't. The rest of them, it was more, you know, they, they were, that was their character. They weren't going through any particular arc, story arc at the time. He was the only one who had a story arc. And I thought he he played it very well. He had that kind of concentration, I think. He's got a very concentrated face. And I think he did very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, so can you tell me now, like now, can we talk about a bit about the, uh, the release of the film and how it did at the box office and everything? <laughs> yeah, it was a flop. <laughs> yeah. The big problem was, um, it was released by a company, it was made by a company called Mirish, um, which was, a which was one of those companies kind of, uh, popped up. I mean, it went for quite a long time, but by and large, <clears throat> they kind of tried to, tell the industry were much bigger than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had been relying on this picture to kind of get them going really well. Um, and the company had been going for a few years and they'd had a couple of hits, but basically you've got it, if you're going to be a production company, you know, what they call, what you call a mini major, you kind of have to keep on producing <clears throat> movies. And that year they only managed to produce two movies rather than 10 or 12. They would always have a big adverts in, in the trade press every year saying coming soon from Mirish and they have a big list of pictures. Most of them never get made. Huh, um, they looked as they were getting made and they'd always be saying we're going to be investing you know, $40 million, $40 million next year, $50 million year after <clears throat> and most of these movies were not going to wow. So they kind of needed they needed a hit. They kind of thought a Western would do it. Um, but when they saw the film, as I said, they didn't like it. They thought it was too long. Um, and they didn't. They didn't really think the stars. This idea of having seven stars worked. And um, Yul Brynner, by that point, his box office position was kind of slipping. He'd mostly had after those kind of three films I mentioned in in the mid fifties. He kind of really didn't have a big hit. Um, so they were kind of. And also, he wasn't known as an action star. He was known as a romantic drama lead. He hadn't been in any action films, so they kind of wondered, will the audience come out for, you know, he's not he's not John Wayne or Robert Mitchum, he's, he's a different kind of star. So they were kind of worried about it, and in those days, these days, movies get released everywhere all at once. But in those days, in 1960, that wasn't the case. The only movies that got released on any wide basis were stinkers. <laughs> the kind of movies that, that you, you know, here today, gone to model get them out as quickly as possible before anybody can say, this is rubbish, don't go to see it. Mm-hmm. So they had, so they, they did what was, they, they made a big thing of it because it was the only thing they could do. Um, they said, we were, we we're going to release this movie on what was called a saturation release, which was their version of a wide release. And they were going to release it in um, area by area. So they'd say we got 900 prints of it and we'll release it in you know, Texas, Oregon and wherever, and then we'll take those 900 prints and then we'll shove them into another three areas the next week and then take those and, and that's the way they go around the country because they thought it would just die to death. And mm-hmm. um, what they hadn't realised was that was that the audiences actually quite liked it. And by the time word, word of mouth got round, the movie had gone. Um, so they weren't really able to capitalise on, on it at all. And it was never shown in, you know, it was never shown in, in Broadway. You know, in those days, all the big movies get shown first in, in New York, hmm. in the cinemas around Times Square and Broadway, what was called the first run cinema houses. You know, there'd be giant, there'd be giant cinemas, Radio City Music Hall, which, which had 6,000 seats, you know, the Capitol, which had you know, 5,000 seats. So there was huge cinemas and you always wanted, your, your movie usually got, got launched in one of those big cinemas. Mm-hmm. Now, that's where they had a world premiere, and then it would start to go out to the other cities. So Magnificent Seven didn't have a world premiere, it didn't have a premiere anywhere, and it wasn't shown in first run in New York. It was first, was first shown in Brooklyn. Hmm. So clearly, <laughs> the studio was saying, we don't know what to do with this picture, we don't think it's any good, so we're just going to chuck it out there, which is what they did, and so it flopped. Yep. Uh, it, might, it might have done better if they'd gone the, the other route, but if they didn't have confidence in it, then it wasn't going to work. So when they brought it to Britain, 
things and did the same thing. It did work. Uh, Britain's a much smaller country. Um, if you've got 200 prints of a picture, you can basically get it in every major cinema in the country all at once. Mm-hmm. And they found it worked in Britain. So they're kind of thinking, holy, God, holy moly, what have we done? And it did well in Europe and it did very well in Japan. But what happened was because the cinemas that had shown it briefly realised that actually the public liked it, they kept on bringing it back. And for two or three years, it would just pop up here and there, here and there, but on a very regular basis, more than most movies did. You know, most movies in those days, once you were seen, once it was shown in the cinema, it would go from the big cinemas to in the big cities to the big cinemas in the smaller cities, then the big cinemas in the smaller towns, and then eventually it would end up in your neighbourhood cinemas and your free pits and all that. But that would take maybe six to nine months because they didn't flood uh, the prints or you know, throughout all the prints all at once. Mm-hmm. So, But once it got to that initial release period, that was it done. That was the movie Dead and Buried. They might bring it back six or seven years later if it had been a big hit. Sure. Well, I mean, it wasn't a big hit, so there was no chance of it coming back. But these cinemas just kept on showing it. Hmm. So it was building up quite a one of those kind of cult fan bases. Um, people liked it, um, kept on coming back. And the studio then kind of thought, oh, people liked this, it's coming back. And by that point, they had started investing in the James Bond films. Um, and the James Bond films, if you remember, you had one from Doctor No, absolute success. And the, the, the Bond makers already planned it was going to be a series. Mm-hmm. So when Doctor No was made, they then put in from Russia with Love, then Golden, then Thunderball. And United Artists realised that was quite a good way to um, to, to bring out films. Bring, don't bring out one, make sure you get you know white sheer kind of thing. They did kind of the same thing with the Pink Panther films mm. <clears throat> and some other ones. Um, so they kind of thought what we would do would would revive this uh, this movie's actually doing better in America than we thought it would. Why don't we try movie number two? So that was going to be Return of the Seven. Yeah, um, but that didn't get done until much later. Um, so they they decided, well, we'll you know to to get back some money, we'll put this movie into the into onto television um, pretty quickly. Um, so it went into television. It was like the second fastest major movie to go into television. These days, of course, there's very little um, gap between uh, film and the mo- showing the movies and in, the, in television. But in those days, there was. It would be three or four years. If it's a huge film, Bridge on the River Kwai might take nine years, Ben Harbour, a decade, sometimes to half a long time in television. Um, but the munificence of it didn't. And, and as I said, it, it, it attracted record audiences. So they then made every turn of the seven. And when they did that, they decided to bring back the Magnificent Seven as a reissue. And then every time they, put, they made another Magnificent Seven film, they would bring back the Magnificent Seven, sometimes yeah. in a double bill with one of the other ones, sometimes not. Hmm. Um, in some years, the reissue did better than the new movie. Um, and this kept on going, even after the movie had been shown in television. And it kept on being shown in television. Every time it was shown in the cinema, the public kept on turning out. So huh. it was kind of a, a pretty unusual event. You know, it became a big, a big hit amongst uh, fans of Westerns and fans of particular types of Westerns. And that's kind of how it got its longevity. Mm-hmm. Being shown again and again. Um, and coming back and then being on television and being a big hit on television. And, of course, by the time it was shown again by, you know, in its kind of third reissue, which was 1969, effectively an all-star cast. Yeah, that's true. At that time, Steve McQueen was a huge star. You know, he'd made The Sand Pebbles, Thomas Crown Affair, Bullet. He was a gigantic star. And Charlie Bronson was just becoming a big star. He's making The Dirty Dozen and films like that. James Coburn was a big star because he'd done the Our Man Flint spy movies and he'd turned into a big star. Mm-hmm. Robert Vaughan was a big star because he'd made The Man From Uncle television series. So you were able to then uh, bring all, you know, then say this was a, a movie with an all-star cast. Yeah. Um, and a genuine all-star cast because generally those films that said the all-star cast were anything but they were usually 
one or two stars and a whole bunch of stars who once were stars mm-hmm. 20 years before, never been stars, but had been big names in the theatre or had a surf in front of a name. You know, these uh, big road shows in the 1960s always seemed to have an all-star cast, including Sir Ralph Richardson and Sir John Gielgud and sort of theatrical knights from Britain. Um, so it was a gen- So people were going to this movie thinking, whoa, that's some cast. How did they manage that? Not realising that at the time it was made that none of these people uh, were stars. So it just got that kind of buzz about it and a lot of things that were um, interesting about the movie. And, and people would have their own uh, one they liked best. Um, it was a big fan, a big fan amongst females, a huge female audience I discovered. Hmm. Um, or more than I thought, they liked all these uh, tough guys sure. in a film, um, and it seemed to go down, sorry, very well. Um, and it was just a, one of those films that kind of seemed to be no idea was strange enough. So that at one point there was going to be a musical. You could <laughs> sort of make a musical of it on Broadway. So it was kind of um, I just had a lot of a lot of an Elmer Bernstein who uh, did the score for the for Moonlight Seven. He did the score for Return of the Seven, but he didn't score anything. He just took music from the previous one and stuck it in. He got also nominated for it, so it was kind of you know, kind of a lot of odd, a lot of odd things. Yul Brynner, you know, returned for Return of the Seven, and after that, it was whatever kind of current tough guy mm-hmm. um, could get to do. But the when you watch it again and you see how well it's constructed with the you know all the introductions for every character and the way it's filmed, you know the the, the very subtle way it's filmed. And I think I'd mentioned in my book that one of the things that astonished me was just the opening. You think you're looking at a tableau of corn ricks, and then sudden and that's there for the most of the credits, and then suddenly somebody walks out of the corn ricks. Yeah. You've not been looking at a tableau, and that's quite a stunning piece of directorial imagination. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the things that Sturges was great at was how to involve the audience with um, characters before they became important to the story. So, as the bandits first ride into the village, um, you see the three characters who are going to be important to the story <clears throat> the father and, and the girl who will become the, the love interest. You see one of the guys who are then going to go and hunt for the, the gunman. They're all just in passing shots. He doesn't mm-hmm. say, you know, they don't have any lines at that point. They're just shown. And again, when he comes to <clears throat> the, the bit with the herfs, um, you, you give, you're given a shot of um, Joe Brenner and Steve McQueen just watching this argument between yep. the undertaker and the two guys without realising they're going to play any important part. And then when the hearse starts going up the hill, at the back of the crowd that's following, at the very end of the crowd, you see Bacolps. Yep. And then the next shot, when it shows the crowd, he's in the middle. And the next shot, when it shows the crowd, he's at the front of it. And Joe Brunner's turning around to see who's that guy following. So you get this kind of introduction of all the characters. And also that kind of uh, way ahead of its time, um, there was a thing... Uh, it was kind of, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the screenwriter William Goldman, who wrote Rich Gas and the Sundance Kid, and a famous book about screenwriting called Adventures in the Screenplay. And he basically started saying you've got to be one step ahead of the audience. The audience is so clever, it knows what's coming. Yep. So after Joe Brenner and, and Steve McQueen have uh, ridden the house up the, the hill and come back down again, you're kind of expected, the audience expects, expects them to buddy up. That's the automatic expectation. And they don't you just say, hi, bye-bye. Yeah. And then, of course, they, again, you're, you're kind of thinking, hold on a minute. So the audience is kind of slightly thrown. So that happens quite a lot throughout the film. You've got, you've got things presented to you, and it doesn't happen the way you, the way you think. You think when the, when the, um, when the, the after the, the battles and after the, the big battle, and then they go up the hill to... Um, to find out where, after Bacolz has come back and said, you know, this is where Calvera's camp is, I'll take you to it. You thought they're going to go up the hill. And unless you'd seen the Seven Samurai, you'd expect there was going to be a battle up there. Yeah. You got the hill and Calvera's guys are gone. So you automatically think, oh, well, they're gone. They've just skedaddled. You go back into the town and there's, oh, they, they, you're the ones that are surrounded. 
Yeah. So it was all this kind of, it was almost like a thriller. Yeah. Almost you know, twist that you just really weren't expecting. Um, and it was, you know, very well, you know, just so well done. You didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, the, the gunmen were all very alert. You know, you had this um, fiesta going on, but they weren't kind of part of it. They already were kind of taking up positions, getting ready. And there was clearly this, there was clearly a lookout because that we, that young lad that runs in and says he's clearly been looking out to yep. see ice. So there's clearly quite a lot that's gone on. And the one thing you don't get as much of as you get in the Seven Samurai is any real bonding with the villagers. Mm. In the Seven Samurai, there's much more of that bonding in the training of the villagers, and there's much more um, of what they plan, you know, the, the very strategies they form to help defeat the um, the bandits. That's yeah. much more obvious, you know, they, they, they build dams and they do this and they do that. Those all then unfold during the battles in the Seven Samurai. In the Magnificent Seven, really, only a couple of things, um, actually, you know, the net is about the only thing that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, but nothing. They don't really do anything else, particularly beyond the, I mean, beyond the stupidest thing. They've got this trap. You're going to write into it. Instead of just shooting you all dead, because we you don't know we're here, we're just going to have a conversation with you. That kind of seems to be kind of a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> kind of logical. And also the also the, um, the villagers, you know, you've got these bandits. They're going to come back. What do you do? You know, choice. We could we could all arm up and get ready for them, or we could have a party. Oh, let's have a party! Let's have a fiesta! Hooray! Yeah, you know? relax. Yeah, in a weird. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, it's just such a fun movie. I, you know, I really just enjoy the film itself. But then, kind of, you know, reading your book, you get the whole history of this thing and all the the kind of the fun stories and history around the production of it and how it got made and everything. So. Uh, I'm glad you and also the, the 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 after story, which was all these lawsuits. Yeah, Anthony sued them because he didn't get you know because he said he was you know he'd helped to write the screenplay, he was a producer, he'd been promised the star part, he was owed all this money, you know, and he took them to court and and Lou Morhang took them to court as well. So you kind of think you know all these things. This is you couldn't have had you know it was a, you could make a film. Of the filming of the Munificent Seven, there was so much involved strikes mm-hmm. and censors and various things that, that went wrong. You know, it's kind of a, an astonishing um, movie production history, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, stuff that you wouldn't even know if, if just you just watch the film and enjoy the film, but you wouldn't even know the whole yeah, backstory. Yeah. But that's I, a I good. And I, I kind of just I came to writing this book um, by a very strange process. Um, I. Not a not a movie writer. I've never been a movie writer. I've been mm-hmm. a journalist at one part of my life, but nothing to do with movies. And mostly, I was a businessman. Um, but for a um, for a treat one year, because I'd always, I don't, when I was a at university, there was a, a library where you could get hold of Variety and Screen International, the big trade British trade magazine, Screen International, the American trade magazine, Variety. And you could hold them and sit and read them. And I used to go down and read them. Um, and I kind of, when I moved to London, I was able to buy variety, which is kind of a big thing. It's, it's all online now, but before it used to be this big, big magazine. Sometimes it would be like 300 pages each year. Whoa. Um, and I kind of, uh, at one point, I kind of, when they first put all their their archives online, um, they, they, had a, they had a paywall. And it cost about 500 bucks a year to get access to a paywall. And one year I decided from a birth, for a present to myself. I was going to buy a subscription mm-hmm. to writing, which went back to 1907. So you could search everything you wanted. So I just kind of started poking around and finding things to interested me and kind of just looking at, you know, you could just put in a, a search for Guns of Navarone and 19, you know, whatever year and just follow films through. So I'd, be, I'd, I'd originally started being very interested in Hitchcock. Um, I started tracking his how his movies had performed in America in, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and coincidentally to that, uh, a company in London who was writing ebooks, producing ebooks of about 15,000 words, asked me to do a book in Hitchcock. Oh. So I did one. It was okay. I mean, I don't sell that many copies. Um, but because I'd been in contact with a uh, university in America, University of Wisconsin, 
um, I'd been con in contact with them back and forth and um, I'd written kind of something based on the research I'd done on Hitchcock's movies in the 1930s and 40s and said, did they know anything who might be interested? They suggested this company called McFarland, which is in America. So I wrote to them and said, I've written a book on Hitchcock, would you be interested? And they said, no, there's too many books in Hitchcock. Have you got anything else? And I said, well, I'm doing a lot of research in the Magnificent Seven. They said, well, have you got a, could you send us a chapter? Well, I didn't have a chapter. But I, I, I quickly got one and sent sure. it to them. And a week later, they said, right, done deal, write us a book. So I did. I just went wow. back and researched the hell out of it. And Very thought, cool. I'm going to write the definitive book on Magnificent Seven. Um, the only problem was um, I couldn't really get to speak to any of the people involved beyond uh, Arnstein, part of Ellie's script, mm -hmm. because they're all dead. Right. Joe Brenner has no records outstanding anywhere. There's nothing, no files in him that you can go to. Hmm. Uh, very little in any of the other ones. I did get quite a lot from this university in America, which had a lot of the, the marriage papers, United Artists papers, so that's where I get details of what Stephen Queen was paid, what Joe Brenner was paid, and the stuff about... Uh, we don't like this movie, we want to cut this from and, and also a, a great telegram which um, John Sturges wanted to quit, you know, before the movie started. He says he was having second thoughts, he wanted to make a different movie entirely and they, and they said, no, you can't quit because <laughs> if you quit we've got to pay you Brenner all this money. Yeah. So it was fantastic, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic experience to be doing research and learning new things that people didn't know and didn't know about this movie. I mean, when I, people often say to me, you know, if, if they meet me and they know anything, you know, and they're interested in me, they say, oh, you're that guy, what did you say? That was a great film, that was a huge success. I said, no, no, it wasn't, it was a big flop. And they kind of look at me and say, no, you're telling a, you're telling a lie. Said, no, it couldn't possibly be a big flop. And you explain, you know, the circumstances. It becomes quite an interesting um, story and you know just the whole background to it so fascinating uh, fascinating movie and as i say a fascinating probably the most one of the most interesting movie stories because so many different people were involved so there were so many changes in casting and director and instruction so many of the problems they faced yeah. which were pretty unusual the afterlife of the movie you know, you know what, what they went on to do, you know, and the fact that even now it's, it's considered such a great movie. And, of course, they remade it with uh, Denzel Washington. Not That's right. Well, <laughs> I kind of think with the Denzel Washington picture. Right. A Gatling gun. Why, do you, why are you leaving that to the end? <laughs> Is that right? Oh, yeah, where's your logic? <laughs> Uh, well, let's mention your book for people listening. It's called, uh, the, the title is The Making of the Magnificent Seven, uh, Behind the Scenes of the Pivotal Western. Uh, anywhere we should send people to grab a copy of that? Uh, you'll just get it in, you'll get it in bookshops if you ask, and you'll get it online. Uh, cool. It's easily accessible online. Okay. Gotcha. I'll have a link for people listening to where they can, uh, oh, yeah. grab that on Amazon or, or somewhere. I'll find it online for them. And, uh. Man, well, this is fun, Brian. I seriously love it. Like, uh, yeah, such a fun story. I'm glad you're sharing it, and uh, you know, appreciate you coming on. I've got a I've got a website called the I'm not a website a blog called the Magnificent Sixties. It's a kind of Ooh, just yeah. looks, just write only about movies in the 1960s, all sorts of movies. Okay, cool. I'll have a link to that also for people to check out for sure. Interesting. Uh, I've written quite a lot of the 1960s, um, and I've got a, I've written a book about. Um, the Westerns of 1969, um, mm -hmm. which I thought was the best year ever for Westerns. Oh, really? <clears throat> so I've, I've, I've watched all 40 Westerns that were made in 1969 Ooh. and wrote about a dozen of them, wrote, you know, big big articles about a dozen of them, and the rest I kind of covered. Mm -hmm. a big argument as to why that was the best. Uh, yeah, And I've got a book coming out about the 1960s probably at the end of this, this year. Yeah. Very cool, man. you got a lot going on, Brian. It's awesome. Great. Cool. Well, thanks okay. again. And that's it. Episodes over. 105 episodes are done. Thank you for uh, being here and listening to the end, to listening to my voice right now. Thank you to Brian for being on. I uh, hope you enjoyed that episode with him. I certainly did. Learned a lot of cool stuff. It's pretty damn fun. And it's a good excuse to go back and watch Magnificent Seven again and even watch Seven Samurai because it's a pretty good film. It's... Uh, I think it's a little uh, 
intimidating for some people because of the uh, three hour long duration and the fact that it's subtitled, but uh, it's good. Uh, I told my sister about it. So Lindsay, if you're listening, you should actually watch it. And uh, that's it. Thanks for being here again. Uh, if you like the episode, if you know somebody who's into Westerns and uh, especially, you know, Magnificent Seven, maybe send this off to them. They might enjoy it. Learn a little bit about the making of and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can find me, Travis, at on Instagram at TravDeRose. Uh, send me an email, Travis at CuriosityNest.com. And uh, that's it. I'll see you in episode 106. Bye-bye.